morning, Delta. Good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here. I want to welcome you. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Uh, as, we, as we gather together, uh, we come together as a body to sing uh, worship uh, to the Lord together. We gather to hear from uh, God's word preached and to fellowship and encourage one another. So I'm really glad you're here this morning. As we begin our worship service, I'd ask you to stand with me. Now read our call to worship. It comes from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Welcome, Delta. Well, good morning, as Brian said. It's great to see your smiling faces this morning. If you're new or visiting Delta for the first time, uh, worship's going to look a little bit different. As you can see, we're a little bit light on the band section today. So we're going to have an acapella worship service like we had a couple weeks ago, and that's fine because it doesn't. this time is not about us anyway. It's not about who's on stage. It's not about how many people are on stage. It's about worshiping the one who is worthy of all of our worship. Amen. So if you will, sing with us, okay? Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Who has held the nails upon his hands? 
Bearing all the guilt of sinful man, God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. You adore him. Amen. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and symphony to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than in yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and breeds for me, my name is graven on his hands. 
My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. And take the last verse up a little bit, okay? Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon Sing that one more time. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is amazing grace, amen? amen? Every week, as you know, we come to this time of our service for a moment of confession. And the reason we do this is because we believe what the Bible says about us. And that is, even though we were created in the image of God, we were born into sin. First, because Adam and Eve fell, and because, as Romans 5 says, we ourselves are guilty of sin. All of us, Romans says, have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that has lived every moment of every day perfectly reflecting our Father, which is what we were created to do. So we have a prayer of confession because... What the, we believe what the Bible says about us, but we also believe what the Bible says about God. And that is, Proverbs 28 says, the one who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will obtain mercy. We believe, as James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We believe, 1 John 1, 9, 
that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So this time is not just to fill another spot in the service. It's not because it sounds religious or it's some old school cool thing for us to do. We do the prayer of confession because we believe what the Bible says about sin and grace and forgiveness. So if you will read these words with me from Nehemiah chapter 1. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. For let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Take a few moments in quiet prayer and reflection to deal with whatever the Holy Spirit may be laying on your heart this morning. Thank God it doesn't end, as Pastor Charles often says, just with confession. For those who confess, we get to sing about God's amazing grace. Amen. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, 
freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his grace, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Listen to this word of assurance, 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Aren't you thankful for that word, all? <laughs> the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. It's time in our service where we normally pass the offering bucket, and um, you can give online if you so desire. If you have any questions about that, feel free to see myself or Chris Flynn. Um, also, if this is your first time with us and if you've never filled out a Connect card, there should be a card in the seat in front of you, name, uh, phone number. We'd love to get in contact with you to see how we can serve you or answer questions about uh, Delta. Um, now I'm going to dismiss the nest and the flock. Uh, to the uh, the nests are going to the Henrys and Becca and the flock Tara Davis and Erica Luce. So if you're that age, feel free to go into the back uh, uh, nest and flock, drop them off uh, downstairs. Um, as far as announcements go, we've got three this morning. Uh, first, we have a deacon vote after service. Uh, so this is for uh, our family members. Uh, if you're a missionary member of Delta, you're invited to come and vote. That is right after service. We're going to have like a five-minute break. And as a reminder, we have four deacon candidates, and we're going to be uh, voting on them uh, during that meeting. It's going to be quick, so I'd encourage you to, to stay around for that. Uh, you probably noticed as you came in this morning, there are uh, some free books on the seat uh, the seat you, you took. Um, it's called Gentle and Lowly. I've not read this, but I've heard uh, several people have, and they say it is an absolutely great book. So as you can see, we have plenty. Feel free to take, uh, take one or take a couple for your family. If, if we see them on eBay, maybe we'll, uh, we'll have to question what, what you're doing with them. But uh, um, no, in all seriousness, it's a, it's a good book, and we put that before you. Also, Bites on the Boulevard is this Wednesday. Uh, if you want to volunteer 
check that out on Slack or see Tommy DeMar. Um, and if the volunteer slots are all filled up, feel free to come hang out and, and just be a presence there in the neighborhood. For our pastoral prayer this morning, we're going to pray for, as we always do, pray for something local, national, and global. Locally, we're going to pray for um, what Jonathan mentioned last week. Uh, we're going to ask God for wisdom and direction. Um, having a, a counseling uh, arm or an education arm, is that something that's, that God is, is wanting us to do? Uh, so we're going to pray for his guidance, and that he would give us wisdom. Nationally, we're going to pray for Afghan refugees. Uh, you got to be living uh, under a rock to not know that there's um, some problems in Afghanistan and a lot. Uh, that's not an insult if you don't know that there's problems in Afghanistan. Uh, all that to say, there's problems in Af Afghanistan. There's refugees who have left Afghanistan uh, seeking refuge in the United States. We're going to pray that the Lord meets their needs, uh, both physically but also uh, spiritually, that the Lord would save them and that they would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And then globally, we're going to be praying for missionaries across the nations. So if you would, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. God, we thank you for the love that you've shown to us. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who cares about us. You care about our needs. And you meet our needs, Lord. God, we're thankful for the ways that you provide for us, that you take care of us. And Lord, ultimately, we are thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to die for us to forgive our sins so that we may have a right relationship with you. God, we thank you for that. We are in debt to you, Lord. There was a debt we could not pay, but your son Jesus Christ paid that for us, and we are eternally grateful. God, as we come before you this morning, we, we pray that you would give us wisdom as a church, guidance as a church, in regards to counseling and education. God, I pray that you would, you would give us wisdom that can only come from you. God, what our next steps are, how we go about this, is this the right thing to do? Are you leading us this way? God, we, we confess that we can't see the future. Lord, you know everything, and we place this in your hands. I pray that you would mold our hearts Lord, to your will and your desire, I pray that you give us wisdom that is beyond ourselves. Lord, nationally, I pray that all the Afghan refugees who are here, I pray that you would, you would protect them, you would meet their needs, and God, would they come to know you. Lord, I know the United States does not have a corner on Christianity. But God, there are gospel-preaching churches in this country, and I, I pray that somehow um, your word would go forth through those churches, through missionaries, even in the United States, Lord, to those refugees. I pray that you would save them and that they would find the salvation that can be found in no one else. And God, I pray for missionaries abroad. God, would you give them boldness and courage to preach your word 
telling everyone about the good news that can be found in Jesus Christ, that salvation is there. God, I pray that you would give them strength and boldness. You would meet their needs. You would protect them physically. I pray that you would help them and give them great hope and great passion for what they are doing. Father, we trust you. We thank you. You are a good God. We lift these concerns and cares before you. God, thank you for this time where we can be together. We could sing songs of worship to you together, and we can hear from your word in an act of worship. We can learn from your word in an act of worship. Lord, help us to respond to what we hear preached in your word. I pray for my brother Jonathan as he preaches. I pray that you give him boldness, courage. God, I pray that you would help us to be attentive listeners and you would change our hearts. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite Meredith Flynn up to read our scripture this morning. Scripture this morning is from Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. It's on page 946, if you're using the Bible underneath your chair. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Relates to uh, the book that you guys find in your seats upstairs or downstairs. I would highly, 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 highly recommend you grab a copy and take it take it home with you. I've read a lot of books um, in, my, in my short 40 years, and at the top of that list is this book right here that came out last year in 2020. I don't know what it is other than maybe God's good providence and seeking to bless his people. This came out towards the end of 2020 in a year when people were just absolutely scorched to bits because of everything that just took place. And the sole aim of this book is to help brothers and sisters in Christ not only have a proper understanding and grasp of the work of Jesus Christ, but to help brothers and sisters know what is the heart of Christ for those whom he has saved. And what you see is that not many times in the scriptures do you find the scriptures peeling back the curtains and revealing the heart of of Christ for those whom he saved. But it happens a few times, and when it does, when the scriptures give us that insight, it consistently results in something you would not imagine the scriptures to say as it relates to the heart of Jesus Christ. 
I would recommend you get this. I would recommend you read this and then reread this and underline it and then reread this. I'd recommend you grab some copies and go take them and give them away to some friends. We have a plethora of these books. We have books on the seats. We have boxes still left over. There's some downstairs. I would highly, highly encourage you to take one of these books, go and read it. Our aim is to take this book and then probably in the spring uh, when we do our men's and women's studies, we usually do one in the fall, one in the spring. I'm making the push that we make the men's and women's study this coming spring of 22 working through this book so we as a church can just sink our teeth into these truths. This book has been used by God, which is a book unpacking scripture to just minister to my soul in some pretty incredible ways. And so I just can't encourage you enough to take the time to chew on this very devotional book in such a way to where this author used by God opens up scriptures and calls us to just fold right into the very heart of Jesus for those who are his own, okay? So that is why those books are there. They are free. Take some. And if I see you walking out with 20 in your hand, good for you, right? Please take some and go and give them away. Be a blessing and an encouragement to others as we're going to hear about this morning. Okay. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Our sermon title this morning is literally just the first two words that we find there in verse 19. It's just going to be called, Therefore, Brothers. And the reason why I'm hanging um, the sermon title on that hook is because that little word, therefore, in verse 19 indicates one of the biggest, most crucial turns in the book of Hebrews as we go from verse 18 to verse 19. The main idea the author is going to lay on us this morning is this, that by the blood of Jesus, we've been talking about this now for a couple of months, by the blood of Jesus... Jesus, who is our great high priest, who we've also been taught, what we've also been talking about for several months, what do we have in light of this truth, the blood of Jesus, our great high priest? We have confidence, the author is going to say, confidence to do three things, draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Let's pray, let's go to the Father, and let's ask him to unpack these most practical words in light of the ten and a half chapters we've been studying thus far. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak and that you would arrest our attention right now. For multiple months now, ever since the beginning of May, we have been looking at what Jesus has done, who he is, what he's done, who he is, what he's done, who he is and what he's done. And now the time has come for us to go, what should my life look like in light of who Jesus is and what he's done? This is the moment of extreme practical application. And Lord, I just want my brothers and sisters in Christ to get it. I want them to understand. I want them to live out I want to understand, I want to live out these realities, but the manifest reality before us all is I don't have the power to make us get it. I don't, but you do. And so I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would delight to inhabit the preaching of your word so that our hearts would be pierced, our lives would be changed, and we would genuinely leave here this morning different because we've humbled and submitted ourselves to the authority of the God of the word we are about to study. 
King Jesus, I'm asking that you receive the glory in this. Use me as an instrument of bringing you that glory. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If you remember last week, I used that sort of musical language to describe what has been going on up to this point in the author's unpacking of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And I said last week, last week it was like he was hitting a crescendo note as he just pulled together all of his themes and he laid them out before us. Well, now, what does the author go on to do? Well, having hit his crescendo, I guess you could say, our conductor, our author, now moves on to what in musical terms we might call a bridge. So like a bridge that you sing in a song, that, that portion of a song that connects you from the lyrics you've just been singing and then swings you around back into a chorus, you can look at these verses here, specifically verses 19, 20, and 21, like a musical bridge. And that bridge is serving to connect the first ten and a half chapters that we've been studying since May. And it's going to funnel us through these three verses and kick us out the back end, connecting us forward to what does right living look like in light of right thinking. For ten and a half chapters, it's been this. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, because he's the priest with the better blood of the better covenant, think this way, know these things, have this thinking rightly about Jesus, we're not just going to leave it there, though, says the author. In light of right thinking, what does practical right living look like? And that is where the author is at. The transition from verse 18 in chapter 10 to verse 19 is one of the major transitions in the letter written to the Hebrews where all that has been said so far, he's going to summarize ten and a half chapters in three verses. Some of us are like, dude, I wish, couldn't he have done Done that ten and a half chapters ago? Like, just give us the nut. No, no, no. He needed ten and a half chapters. But now he's going to say, ten and a half chapters, I'm going to shrink it down to these three verses, and we're going to walk through those three verses, and then we're going to turn to the practical application of all that's been said. And the reason why the author's doing this is because the author knows something. The author knows that it is never enough for us as Christians merely to understand the truth. There's tons of people who know a lot of truths, but those truths have not worked themselves out in obedience to what they know to be true. So what the author knows is that it is never enough for us as Christians merely to understand the truth. We must also make proper response to what we know to be true. Therefore, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, this good and right thinking about the truth of Jesus, the author is now putting the question before us, so what? Like, so what? That Jesus is who he is and that Jesus has done what he's done and that all the priests and the blood and the tabernacle and the covenant and Moses and Joshua and Aaron and angels. Uh, hopefully the question you've been asking now for a multitude of months is like, so what? What is this supposed to mean? I got to get up and go to work tomorrow morning. I got to go care for my, my elderly father. 
I have a neighbor across the street that I'm ministering to. What in the world does 10 and a half chapters of all this stuff mean, not merely for me as an individual, but what does it mean largely, corporately, for the body of believers? Because Jesus is that superior name better than angels, the superior apostle better than Moses, the superior bringer of rest, better than Joshua, the superior priest, better than Aaron, because Jesus has brought the better hope of a better covenant and acted on better promises, because he has offered the better blood of a better sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, because he is the one able to save to the uttermost and is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us. The question the author wants us to wrestle with is this. What should my practical day in, day out response to that be? What should it be? And in a way that is just as blatant and as easy to see in the text before you is this. He says it should look like this. You need to draw near, you need to hold fast, and you need to stir up. That is our corporate proper response to the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to came to do i want you to draw near to god i want you to hold fast to the hope of the gospel and then i want you to turn around and consider dream up pursue ways to stir up and encourage one another to love and good deeds and meeting together because there is a day that is closer today than it was yesterday and we need to encourage one another in these ways. That's what he's going to do. Is anyone surprised by that? I, I, gotta be, I sort of was a little. Like you would expect him to come along and say, hey, because of Jesus, better, 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 because of what he's done, because of what he's done, because of what he's done. I don't know. I, I don't know. I would have expected him to say, yeah, and in light of this, don't neglect to meet together. Don't, don't forget to stir up one another, encourage one another. You would expect it. I don't know, maybe something a little different, but that is not what the Holy Spirit of the living God puts before us. The Holy Spirit of the living God says, because of these realities, corporate body of believers concerning the superior Christ, his superior blood, the superior covenant that is truly finished, full, forever, once for all, forgiveness of sins applied to your soul. What does it look like? Draw near to God because you can now. Hold fast. Don't do this to Jesus. And then look left and look right and stir one another up. So to transition us into these realities across that connecting bridge from right thinking, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, into right living, chapter 19, through the end of the book, the author does what almost all authors do in the New Testament, and that is he's going to funnel us through the word, therefore. That word, therefore, is meant to cast a shadow all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. In light of what I've been saying for ten and a half chapters, therefore, brothers, since, here he is, he's summarizing ten and a half chapters now, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. You didn't have that confidence under the Old Testament covenant. But you do under the new covenant, you have confidence to enter into the holy places. Why? Because you're just a phenomenal human being and you just sort of have the divine right granted by you because you're so awesome? No. 
you have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. After all, he is the new and living way that has brought us to the Father. He's opened for us this new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, since we have confidence to come before God, and since we have a great high priest before God, there is a God-glorifying, spirit-empowered way to live. That's just what he's saying right now. Just think in all that's been said so far, in a nutshell, by the blood of Jesus, you have confidence to enter into God's presence. Just think of what a Jewish man or woman had under the old covenant, not confidence. They couldn't do it. The regular priests, they couldn't do it. One high priest, one time a year, had the confidence to go in, then he had to turn around and tuck right back out. But we have the confidence to enter in, and the implication here in a minute is going to be enter in and stay, to stay right there. Jesus' blood opened for us a new and living way. Upon the cross, Christ's flesh was torn and at the same time, so think about what you know concerning the narrative of Jesus in the Gospels when he died, specifically Matthew's Gospel. Do you remember what happened at the time when Jesus' flesh was torn on the cross? Matthew's Gospel tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was that signifying? That was signifying that through the death of Jesus, there has been opened and opened wide the way to God for sinners. We can enter in. With confidence now, not because you're phenomenal, but because of Christ and the gospel of the cross. It is the new way, says the author, because Jesus has inaugurated that new covenant. It is the living way, says the author, since Jesus is the one who is alive. Jesus is the living stone, the living bread from heaven, the light of the world who gives the light of life. Indeed, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The only door, says the Apostle John, by whom we have access to God, for truly Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, the new and living way. In short, says the author in this little connecting bridge, in short, what you can just say is this, you, sir, you, madam, who have come to Christ for salvation, you have a great priest over the house of God. And we, as members of that house, if we've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, along that language that Brady was using earlier in 1 John chapter 1, confessing our sins, recognizing that I, I'm not someone that's got no sin. I, I, I am someone who has sinned. What I need is a Savior. You come to Christ. You are folded into the household of God, and we as members of that house, guess what we have? We have access to God because our great priest has made a way for you and I to go into God's presence and stay. And stay. 
Therefore, since we have the better way-making sacrifice of Jesus, and since we have this better priest, guess what? Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. That's point number one. Look at verse 22. Since, since, since we have these things, here's the practical application of how we begin to live rightly in light of right thinking. Let us, verse 22, let us. Notice the corporate nature here. Let us, as the body of believers, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Question, how are we the household of God how are we, the household of God, to live in light of all that Jesus has done? The answer is to avail ourselves of the way made open by a great priest. Because he has made the way open, we're not supposed to go, hmm, I'm glad he did something. Good for him. No, no, no. Because our great high priest has made the way open, the invitation is step into that way and lean in. Draw near. Move into it. Move forward. Lean into that reality. Embrace that reality. Cling that reality. Have you ever thought about how your access to God has been entirely accomplished by Jesus? He has made the way for you to draw near to the living God. He paid the necessary price by his blood so we could draw near. So the exhortation, the first practical application is, what are you waiting for? Do it. Draw near, draw, draw near to the one who has saved you. Not timidly, you don't have to go in sheepishly, but you get to go in unhesitatingly. You get to go in frequently. You get to go in intimately with this God who has saved you. By the blood of Jesus, we can enter into God's presence with assurance that he loves us. We're going to find welcome and not wrath. We can come into his holy presence with, without fear, without doubt. We can approach him in prayer knowing the one I'm approaching delights to hear me. We can confess our sins to him, not out of fear of judgment, but in hope of forgiveness. Again, it goes back to these verses that Brady read to us before. And with great confidence, we can draw near to his throne of grace why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace for those times of need that we find ourselves in. So with true hearts, he says, that have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies that have been washed with pure water, draw near in full assurance Draw near, not going, well, I don't know. Did the blood really do it? Did the body really, did, did the sacrifice, did, did, did it, did it? Did. He's like, no, no, no. It's finished. It is finished. Let that reality fuel your drawing near with a full assurance of faith by the blood of Jesus. Sin, dead sinners are made clean in the eyes of God. This is the foundation of your assurance. It is an absolute trust in the priesthood of Jesus, this full assurance. 
It's an unswerving confidence in the matchless worth of his sacrifice. It is a wholehearted persuasion that Jesus alone is the one who's brought me to God. I did not bring myself to God. It is Jesus who brought me to the living God. This is the full assurance of my faith. And upon that full assurance, it's like a boot in my rear end that's nudging me forward to draw near. Why? Not because I'm phenomenal, but because Jesus is the one who's paid it all and accomplished it by his blood. Therefore, draw near to God, he says. But that's not all. He's got two more things he wants us to see. The author is also going to call us by saying, let us hold fast. So let us draw near. Remember, ten and a half chapters of right truths concerning Jesus means we are now to draw near. And now he's going to say ten and a half chapters of right truths concerning Jesus means we're also to hold fast. Look at verse 23. Hold fast. Let us hold fast. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. You see, whether it's from the devil above, the world without, the flesh within, the consistent messaging of this age is one that beckons us to see Jesus and do this. Loosen your grip on him. Loosen your grip on Jesus. Don't hold fast to that archaic Jewish Nazarene. Don't hold fast to him. Loosen your grip on him. That's the spirit of the age. It beckons us to do this. The author is saying to the original audience then who were suffering the same temptation to loosen their grip on Jesus, it carries forward to us because we still live in the same spirit of the age. The author is saying, listen, this is no time to loosen your grip on Jesus. This is no time to loosen your grip on Jesus, to waver in your faith, nor believe the lie that anything else is better than Jesus. This isn't the time to do that right now. The unmitigated fact is that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. The unmitigated fact is that he is seated at the right hand of God right now. The unmitigated fact is that by the sacrifice of himself once for all, Jesus has put away sin. This is the confession of our hope. And upon this confession, the author is drawing us, challenging us, calling us to cling to, hold to, embrace this confession of gospel-centered hope on Christ alone without wavering. Without wavering. Now, what you need to know is what you already know. And I'm here to remind you of what you already know. What you need to know is that for those who do this, who hold fast to the confession of Christ alone for salvation in this world, what you will be met with is an unrelenting barrage of people challenging you and calling you to loosen your grip. Holding fast this confession of hope means people will think you are an absolute ridiculous person. They will dismiss you as crazy, they will reject you as narrow-minded, and they will cancel you as an offensive person. 
They will limit you, they will persecute you, and they will relegate you to the dregs of society that must be silenced at all costs. But in days like these, much like the days that these Jewish Christians found themselves in, the call is for God's people to hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. Why? Why should we do this? What is the impetus nudging us forward to obey this command to hold fast? The answer is at the end of the verse, because he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. We hold fast by the power of the God we confess because the God in whom we trust is the God of faithful promises. And for those who've tasted and seen the goodness of such a faithful God, we strive not in our own strength, right? This command here, maybe it needs to be unsaid, but I'm saying it anyways. When you hear the command, the call of practical application in light of ten and a half chapters of right thinking concerning Jesus, and he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He's not saying bootstrap this thing. Come on, Brady, get, get your act together, man. Go on out there on Monday morning and make it happen, man. Dig down deep and, and really grab hold of that Jesus juice and really, really make it happen, right? That's not what he's saying. The implication behind any of these commands is this. As you draw near, as you hold fast, as you consider how to stir up one another, you need the power of the living God. You need the power of the Holy Spirit of God in you to empower you, strengthen you to walk forward in these things. So... For those who've tasted and seen the goodness of such a faithful God, we strive for in these realities, these practical everyday realities, in strength not our own, to hold fast our confession without wavering. Made me think here, my mind, when I was just processing and praying and going at these things this week, my mind went to an old hymn by a guy named Martin Luther who says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Now, come on, don't, don't let me down here. This is not me asking a rhetorical question. What is the one little word that felled the devil? We've been talking about it all last week. What is it? It starts with the letter F. Someone be brave. Shoot it out there for me. Finished. Bless you. Voice from the back. Whoever shouted it out somewhere. Finished. What's the one little word that fells the devil? When Christ, the Son of God, was pinned to the cross, in English we have to say, it is finished. In his original language, Jesus shouted one word, tetelestai, which translates into our language as it is finished. It's one little word. When he shouted, finished, gave up his ghost. Three days later, blew out of the grave. The devil was defeated. Defeated. And so that's what we bank our hope on. He who has promised the victory over Satan, sin, and death, the world, the flesh, and the devil, said it was finished. It is finished. His resurrection from the grave proves that it is finished. And so now we are in 
called and empowered to cling, march forward to the promise that is going to faithfully and has proven itself to be faithful, found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the confession of our hope, and that's why we can anchor on that without wavering. Without wavering. I think it's also important to notice something here, and I want to draw this out to you. Notice the corporate nature of these verses. I've tried to like, say this a couple different times, but what I want you to see is this. I don't know that it's a danger for just the American church only. Uh, maybe it's a danger for just Christianity and broad, but I, 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 know, I, know, I know what I know, and I know the context of where we find ourselves this. Typically what happens when you come to these great like applicational turns in letters, so like the book of Romans goes chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all doctrine, all right thinking, and then he makes the therefore turn of Romans chapter 12. He does it in uh, Ephesians. It's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, unity, in diversity, maturity, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. He does it in the book of Colossians. You just see it all over in the New Testament. Right thinking, transitional turn to right living. What we tend to do, I feel like in the American West, is grab that and go, and just turn it in on ourselves. We go, what does this mean for me, for me and I and myself and me and how should I go about doing these things? I'm not saying that that is wrong, but I think what we miss so often is that the applicational turns in so many of these books is what does it mean for us as a corporate family united together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm just wanting you to see it's really important right now because of where he's about to go is that's exactly what he's doing right now. Notice what he says. Let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope as these Jewish Christians knew all too well the world, the flesh, the devil war against those who draw near. Wars against, rages against the corporate body of believers who say we will not waver on the confession of our hope. So the question is when nations rage and peoples plot against the sons and daughters in the house of God, how do we as a corporate body of Jesus family followers, how do we hold our original confidence firm to the end look left look right look forward look behind i'm talking about us right now this corporate body of jesus followers how do we draw near how do we as a corporate body of believers hold fast in the face of trial in the face of hardship in the face of suffering in the face of persecution in the face of job loss, in the face of property loss, in the face of affliction, in the face of reproach, as you'll see next week, this is exactly what was going on to these people, by the way. People were going into their homes and plundering their goods. Why? Because they love Jesus. People were being thrown in jail. Why? Because they love Jesus. The question is, when the world with devils filled rages against the body of believers, how do we fan into flame a spirit among the Jesus people that says, let's draw near, let's not do this to Jesus, but let's hold fast to the confidence of our hope without wavering. The answer that the author gives is that we consider 
how to stir one another up. That is the answer. Stir one another up. Just look at the last two verses, verses 24 and 25. And let us, so there's the third let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, that's, that's the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, the corporate body of Jesus' followers will draw near to God. The corporate body of Jesus' followers will hold fast the confession of gospel hope in the best of times and especially in the worst of times as they stir up one another to love and good works. Thus, the call from the author to you and I as a body of believers is consider how to do this. Like, dream about it. Think about it. Go wild about it. What can you do as a part of a Jesus family to stir somebody up to say, how can we love our neighbor? How can we love one another? To go forth and doing the good works, not to earn grace, but because grace has been given, we go forth and do those good works. Consider these things, he says. We cannot live the Christian life on our own. We can't do it. We can't live the Christian life on our own, though Lord knows many have tried. Many try. And perhaps they've tried because they've had bad experiences in church. Perhaps they just don't see the need why they should make the commitment to gather with the people of God. Or perhaps it's just for some other reason, but whatever it is, they have fallen, says the author, they have fallen into the habit of neglecting to meet together with other believers. And as we shall see next week, there is extreme danger for our souls when this neglect becomes habit. You see, the way the house of God, the brothers and sisters who've been adopted into the family of God, the way the house of God works is that we need each other. We need to be weekly. We need to be daily. Dare I say, we need to be hourly stirred up and encouraged in our journey along the pilgrim way. We need those who will help us, those who will encourage us, those who will push us, those who will rebuke us, those who will love us, and then in turn will get the same right back from us. That's why meeting together, says the author, is so crucial to the forward progress of your gospel journey in this world today. I mean, just look around at one another. Literally, I want you to turn your heads left and right and look at each other right now. You have people sitting around you. Have you ever asked yourself, why in the world do we do this? I'm talking about this. 10 to noon every Sunday morning. Have you ever asked yourself, like, why are we, why are we doing this? Like, why do we have greeters and people who can sing? And like, why does Pastor John wave his arms like he's fighting bees for about 45 minutes? And then like, we all go home and we're like, well, okay, I guess we'll do it again next week. You know, I mean... Just stop. I'm, I'm legitimately asking, have you ever thought, why in the world are we doing this right now? Why are we doing this right now? Why are we here right now? Why are you here right now? 
Why have we made it our habit to gather for two hours on a Sunday morning to sing songs, read scripture, make confessions, speak assurance, pray corporately, and then listen to preaching? Why? Why? Why are we doing this? Listen, if the answers to these questions sound anything like this, well, you know, Pastor Jonathan does need a job after all. You know, got to do something for two hours on Sunday. Or because, well, I'm supposed to. I don't know. It's just what grandma always said. Or because I'm trying to earn points with God, which I fear is probably more closer to the truth than some of us would care to admit. Got to keep in his good graces after all. Better get to church. Or maybe this hits closer to home because you'll just feel guilty if you don't. Because you're trying to march forward in a works-based way in your relationship with Jesus. Listen, if these or the answers, then friends, we just need to pack it all up and we need to go home. If answers like these are the best we can give for why we gather and meet together, then quite frankly, man, we, we've all got better things to do on a Sunday morning. But if the motivation for gathering with the saints is to stir up one another encourage one another to love and good works, now the motivation is just entirely different. It's not the only motivation the scriptures give, but this is the motivation that the author is giving right now. You see, these verses before us are not Santa Claus theology. Santa Claus theology, why should you be good? You should be good for goodness sake. For the sake of being good, go on out there, little kids, and be good, and then you'll earn some rewards from Santa. The most works-based righteousness thing ever taught in our culture today. Santa, come on, buddy. Sorry, some of you parents probably have to go home and have conversations, and I apologize for that. I should have given you the fair warning there. These verses are not Santa Claus theology where we're to be good for goodness sake. Don't hear the author saying this. Go to church for church's sake, for the sake of going to church. Just get there and just do it, why don't you? You know you don't have anything better to do for those two hours on a Sunday morning, man, just get there. That's, that is not, no, 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 no. That is not what he's saying. Sometimes pastors will get up and reach into these two verses and pull them out like a proof text billy club to beat people over the head on, why have you been at church on Sunday, man? Now, there's implications to gathering that look like that, but that, I would argue, is aiming too low for what the motivation and the implication of these texts are talking about here. You see, what the author knows is this, that as we see the day drawing near, have you looked inside your Bible there? The word day has a capital letter D on it. The day. What is the day? It's the the day when this Savior who was pinned to that tree was put into a grave, resurrected from the grave, 40 days later ascended into heaven. The scriptures say there is a day when that that king is going to be coming back. And that day is consistently doing this, getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. The author knows this. And what the author knows is that as we see that day drawing near, increased suffering, increased affliction, increased reproach will come for the people of God and these will make drawing near and this increase will make holding fast the confession of our hope increasingly difficult 
Yeah? So as this day is continually drawing near to us and we find ourselves marching closer to it, your Bible tells you, my Bible tells me that the days that are continually shrinking and getting shorter and shorter as we move forward to this day, what will increase is the difficulty of not wavering and standing firm, holding fast to our confession, continually drawing near because the world, the nations, the peoples will rage against the Jesus people who are saying, I will not waver on Christ. And the question is when the difficulty and the affliction and the trials and the sufferings and the hardships and the persecutions begin to go like this, how will you do not do this to Jesus. How will you not be like, don't need to draw near anymore because I know this. When I draw near, the world rages against me. I don't want the world to rage against me. I will no longer draw near. The, the author saying, no, 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 draw near, hold fast. How will you do this, saints, corporately, Jesus' body here this morning? How will we do this? We will do this by meeting together, he says meeting together. Wait, well, what you're telling me, Pastor Jonathan, is that this time right now with one another is how I'm going to be encouraged to draw near to God? Yes. Are you telling me that right now the singing of songs and the confession of sin and the assurance of gospel hope and the preaching of the word and the gathering together and the fellowship of the saints... These are the things that God uses to fan and to flame a heart that will draw near and hold fast. The author says in verse 25, that's it. That's it. Thus, we must not neglect to meet together, for our meeting together is God's design for how we will be stirred up to hold our original confidence in Jesus firm to the end. Friends, this is why I need you at community group. I. Pastor Jonathan, listen, I, I'm not some superior Christian, y'all. I'm just a Christian like you who just so happens to have the calling to work out a particular gift in a particular way, but that doesn't make me super, super Christian. I still need to draw near because sometimes I'm tempted to not. I still need to be stirred up and encouraged to hold fast the confession of my hope without wavering because there's times when I do want to waver. There's times when the world with devils filled rages and you know what? It's like, I'm a little discouraged. That's why I need someone to encourage me. And I'm assuming all the words I just said could be pulled out of my mouth and inserted into your guys' mouths and say the exact same thing. And so what the author is arguing is we will run at these things when we gather in places like community group, when we gather like places at Sunday morning, when we gather together at places like Bites on the Boulevard, when we gather together on Friday nights, when we gather together for coffees and for lunches and discipleship groups and all these things, when we set it in our hearts to meet together, we are availing ourselves of God's very means to fan into flame what it takes to hold fast draw near, all because we are meeting, stirring up, and encouraging. That's why I need you to sing songs exalting Jesus, because singing songs that exalt Jesus on a Sunday morning stirs me up to love and good works. When we were singing this morning, I wasn't up here going, oh man, this stinks. Man, I wish this thing would end. Wow, how lame. I feel so unstirred right now. 
No, no, no. It stirred my soul to hear your voices launching over my head towards the front as I stood up here singing. I need to hear you confessing sin because like me, I have sinned this past week and it encourages me to draw near to God in full assurance of faith when a guy like Brady gets up and says, this is why we're confessing sin right now. We don't just need to kill five minutes in the middle of the service. I need to hear you confess sin because I too have sinned this past week and my soul can go, yeah, I don't, do we really have that kind of assurance? Oh, you sinned too? Well, what are we going to do about that? Then comes the word of assurance, cling to Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. By his blood, we can draw near to the living God. I need to receive these words of assurance from the word of God right along with my Jesus family because it compels me to hold fast to the confession of our hope in the morning, or our gospel each and every morning that we come and sit under the preaching of the word. Listen, ultimately the gathering of the saints, the singing of the saints, the confessing of the saints, the assuring of the saints, the hearing habits of coming together and submitting ourselves to the word of God with the saints. This is how our Christian lives, this is how we go about obeying Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today why why mr author why should i set it in my heart to stir up my fellow brothers and sisters to love and good works why should i encourage one another why mr author should i exhort my fellow saints every day as long as it is called today this is why he says so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin You see, all of a sudden now going to church is just more than just going to church. Amen? Like, man, listen, man, if this is if this, this whole thing on two hours, man, I've got better, time, better stuff to do with my time. But if this is God's ordained means for all of us as a corporate body of believers to press forward to the day that is drawing near, If meeting together is God's ordained means for how we encourage one another to draw near, hold fast, and stir up all the more. Because we believe Romans 13, 11 through 13, which says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. Notice how he keeps saying this. Even Apostle Paul does this. Let us, let us, let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Saints, how in the world are we consistently, habitually going to obey the command to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? The author says, meeting together, stirring one another up and encouraging one another. Saint, who have you encouraged today? Who have you encouraged today? Friend, who have you stirred up today to love and good works? 
Beloved, who have you nudged today to draw near and hold fast to King Jesus? Who have you prayed for today? Who have you walked up today and you didn't say a single thing? All you did was you just wrapped your arms around their neck and hugged them because that single action could speak more than a thousand words because you know right now in their pursuit of Jesus, they don't need words, they just need a hug. You can't hug someone in that way and compel them and propel them to love Jesus more if you're not around meeting with that person and one another. Friends, my hope is that we will fight by God's strength to make this the culture at Delta Church. This becomes the culture of Delta Church. A stirring up, encouraging, faithful, continual meeting of one with one another so that we are continually called to draw near and hold fast because we've considered how to stir up, okay? Let's pray for these things. Jesus, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Who's our one defense? You are. Who's our one righteousness? You are. Who is our rock and our refuge, our redeemer, our savior, our friend? It's, it's you. You are. Holy Spirit, stir our hearts in these things, not for us, not for our namesake, not for our glory, but would you help us to consider how we can stir up and encourage one another so that you would receive maximum glory from a people who are holding fast to the confession of their hope day in, day out, Monday through Friday, no matter the situation they find themselves in without wavering. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good news. This is the time in our service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, you don't have to be a member to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but um, we, uh, we're open to anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. So if you're checking Christianity out, if you're not sure about Jesus, we, we ask that you just remain in your seat and ponder Jonathan's sermon. But what we believers in Christ do, we, we come and we see there's a little bit of juice that represents Christ's blood. There's a small wafer that represents Christ's body. And we remember the Lord's death. This is what Paul has to say. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So believe in Christ as we take communion, we remember Christ's death, and we look forward to the day where we get to eat with him in his kingdom. There's a table in the front, a table in the back. A song will be played Feel free to come as you're led. Take communion. You can uh, take it on the side. Take it in your seat. Um, but we ask, uh, ask that you do that now.
It's because of the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, his resurrection three days later, and his ascension that we can now, with joy in our hearts and with confidence, sing these words in Christ alone. Will you stand with us as we close? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the one he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. On him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curse has lost its grip on me for i am his and he is mine bought with the precious blood of christ we're going to take it up a little bit. Here we go. Sing it out. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power, no power of hell.
returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Amen. Amen. Delta, we exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples. So go forth this week, drawing near to God, holding fast to our confession of hope, and stirring up one another for good works, and telling others about the good news that's found in Jesus Christ. Hear this benediction from the book of Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Delta Church, go in peace. Members, five minutes, we'll have a quick meeting.